So they went to Cana <clears throat> for this wedding. And they had a, uh, a great embarrassment. Uh, the weddings there lasted a long time. Um, here, present day, the service itself, the actual vows and all that, takes about 10 minutes, 15. Um, in those days, they would celebrate for a week. And they would be expected to um, feed everybody who came and take care of their needs. Well, this wedding was in Cana, and they ran out of wine. Now, this was a, a tremendous social problem. It was a great embarrassment, would have been a great embarrassment to the family. And um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, knew about it, and so she went over to Jesus, knowing who he was, and said... Um, they have no wine. And Jesus said, very respectfully, this is a, a, a distancing from her a bit, but it was also a very respectful way to address her. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, in the book of John, when it talks about Jesus' hour, it's talking about crucifixion and resurrection. And so he says, it's not time yet for this to take place. Mary turns to the servants and says to them, do whatever he tells you. And that's good advice, isn't it? We need to hear that today, every day when you wake up. What am I going to do today? And we need to hear Mary say to us, you do whatever he tells you to do. And she left. So there were six stone water jars, this is in John chapter 2, for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now these aren't the kind of thing, like we have a bucket, you can get up and you can go fill it with water and bring it back. These are stone, um, carved out stone water pots. They're big, they're very heavy, even when they're empty. But each one holds about... Um, 20 or 30 gallons. And they used those because all the, the kosher Jews, they would wash their hands before they ate or before they did anything like that. And so this was for the cleansing of the hands of all the people who came to the wedding. There's lots of water in those jars. But since the wedding had been going on for a while, I imagine the water was getting a little low. But So you got these stone water pots lined up over there. And Jesus says to the servants, uh, you want to fill them up with water. And so they would go haul the water from wherever they got their water from, and they would come and they would pour it in there, and they would fill up these six stone water pots, um, each one holding, again, 20 or 30 gallons. That's a lot of water. Uh, and then Jesus said to the servants, uh, now you take the dipper and take some to the guy, the master of uh, ceremonies is what we would call him. Take it to the master ceremonies, the guy in charge of organizing the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast calls the bridegroom over and he says, what are you doing? Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, 
Then you bring out the poor stuff, the cheap stuff. But you, you've kept the good till now. And John writes, This was the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So many times in the scriptures when it talks about the wine, uh, the wine is a symbol of joy and praise and plenty. And so when they says that uh, and during this wedding that they, they ran out of wine, it's like a social commentary on what's taking place in the nation. They've lost their joy. They've lost their fullness and the abundance of walking with the Lord. And so what Jesus does is he sets up a, um, a thing that should become a pattern for us. You do whatever he tells you. And so the first task is to be close to him and hear what he has to say. Once we hear what he has to say, that's not enough, is it? We have to obey and put it into practice. With the obedience comes revelation. Sometimes you hear people talk today and they say, well, I wonder why God doesn't speak like he did in the past. Well, he has. But it's when we hear and when we obey that the hearing becomes a revelation. Obedience also opens the door, creates the, the situation for miracles to take place. Paul tells us in Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing. Faith is created by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Hebrews 4, chapter 4, verse 2 tells us that uh, talking about the people who perished in the wilderness during that 40 years wandering during the Exodus time. He said those people failed to enter into the promised land because they didn't combine their hearing with faith and with obedience. That's why they failed to enter in. They failed to enter in because of their unbelief. And so in, with these servants there in Canaan, they hear what Jesus says, do whatever he says, and in the act of obedience, putting into practice, doing what he told them to do, the revelation comes and the door is open for transformation. Water into wine, sinner into saint. That's the miracle that takes place. But it's hearing the word of God, um, believing the word of God, and then obeying the word of God. So the word comes, it creates the faith, and faith, if it's genuine faith, results in obedience. If there's no obedience, there's no faith, and we really haven't heard what he has to say to us. So Jesus talked about it, and then they had a, a, a different sort of a issue here when they took the water that had now become wine to the master of ceremonies, and he says, wow, this is the best, this is the best. You should have served this first. In Matthew chapter 17, I think it is. No, sorry, Matthew 9, verses 16 and 17. Matthew 9, verses 16 and 17. Jesus is talking and 
He's talking to them about fasting. And his disciples are being criticized because both the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist were fasting. Um, just as a matter of spiritual discipline for the righteous Jews, they fasted twice a week as a personal discipline. And so they're saying, well, look, uh, we're fasting twice a week. Disciples of John fasting twice a week. Well, your disciples are eating. And Jesus tells them in verse 15, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. So he puts this in, a, in the context of a wedding, just like took place there at Cana. And he goes on and he says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, the wine is spilled, skin or, skins are destroyed. New wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. And so there is a, a new wine that Jesus uh, created here at the wedding in Cana. But to receive that new wine, uh, you need new wineskins, new ways of accommodating, put it again in, into practice and living it out. Because the old forms, the old disciplines uh, will not contain the new thing that God is doing. Understand this from Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out for the first time on all flesh in fulfillment of the promise of God from way back in the days of Joel chapter 2. And he says, In the last days the Lord will pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. And he starts listing them, men and women, young and old, boys and girls, all flesh. And when, they, when that began to happen on the day of Pentecost and these people burst out of the upper room and began to share with the crowds that had gathered there for the Feast of Pentecost, some of the mockers in the crowd says, oh, these men are filled with new wine. And they were right, weren't they? The new wine of the Spirit was poured out upon these men and the women that were there. And as they were sharing... It, uh, the old ways of interpretation, the old ways of applying it and living and relating to other people were not adequate enough. It calls for a radical transformation, uh, a radical obedience exemplified in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, um, Jesus took the Old Testament command, commandments and he expanded them. So the old commandment was don't murder. Jesus says that's the law. That's the letter of the law. But those who are new in the kingdom of God, you don't hate. Uh, there's no bitterness. There's no resentment. Um, there's no holding of grudges in those who are filled with this new wine of the Spirit. And so it's, and he goes on and he makes those applications as you go through uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's a, it's a fulfillment and an overflowing of an abundance that was far greater than could be contained by the old commandments. And so, 
as they began to question Jesus later on about uh, his understanding of the law, he said, all the law and the prophets can be summed up in two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you do those two things, then all the rest of the law will be fulfilled in your life. If you love God with all your heart, you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to covet. You're not going to lust. You're not going to be resentful. You're not going to do all these other things that it specifically talks about in the commandments. They will be fulfilled. And so this new wine that Jesus is making is better than the old. And it far surpasses it and cannot be contained with the old forms of the past. Now John continues there and he says that this was the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And so the, the glory of Christ was beginning to be revealed now in the presence of his first disciples and the people that were there. Uh, what was in him and who he was was beginning to shine forth through his actions. So what, by keeping the, the best wine till, till the last was the first of the signs. Um, it was the kind of thing that God was working in and through his son as a sign. Um, in, in the Gospel of John, the sign becomes something that is meant to reveal the nature and character of Christ. At the end of the book, of the Gospel of John in chapter 20, John, like a good author, incorporates in his text the reason for the writing of the book. And so for a lot of books, you know, you're, you're reading along and you're saying, well, what's the real point? What's the real focus as far as the author is concerned? Well, John tells us so that we don't have to question and we don't have to fight over the interpretation. So in John chapter 20, he tells us, starting with verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why this was written. And as you go through the Gospel of John, uh, the word sign is his way of, of getting specific miracles which Jesus did. As, as he tells us, there were, there were tons. There were many, many signs. He has chosen the, the few that he's included in the gospel here for the very purpose of understanding who Jesus is and believing that he is the Christ, the Son of God. He starts off his gospel that way, doesn't he? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he goes on in that first chapter to say... Um, God became flesh in the person of his son. And he, he's coming back to that uh, after the resurrection. And John comes back to that and he says, these are written so that you might believe. And so it's doing what Jesus tells us to do. And as we hear, that creates faith. And then we combine the faith with the obedience. What happens is the revelation and transformation. So that we might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name.
Now the outcome of this in chapter 2 this was the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. He manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so this is creating belief in the hearts of these people that are coming. God creates that within them. As they hear his word, as they believe it, as they obey, as they see the results in their life and in the lives of those people around them. And it's a creating um, a faith within their lives. That's how it works with us as well, isn't it? It's not enough to know the Word of God or to hear the Word of God if it's not combined with faith that results in obedience. It means nothing. Nothing at all. Because it's more than a head trip. So when we think, well, maybe that's the end of this story. But this is just the uh, first chapter of the story at Canaan. The second chapter of the story of Canaan is in John chapter 4. And we can pick this up in verse 46. Now you all are familiar with John 4 because that's uh, where Jesus is going through Samaria with his disciples and he stops there at Samaria and he meets the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. And uh, this was a radical, radical um, going against public uh, expectations. He would have been condemned by all the righteous Jews for what he did at Samaria. He went and he talked with this uh, wicked woman, uh, been married four times and was living with a man that she wasn't married to. And so she was a social outcast, so she's here at the, at the well by herself in the heat of the day because she's not welcome to go with the other good women in the early morning. So she's out there at the heat of the day, and Jesus is there to meet her, and he confronts her with the issues of her life. Now, she didn't really need him to do that, because she knew what she was. She knew what she was. But as Jesus confronts her, it's not a condemnation, it's an invitation this is what you are. This is what you want to be. And I can help you to get from there to there. What God created you to be. And that's what she had lacked, wasn't it? Uh, a lot of people don't like who they are. Much less like anybody else. They struggle with who they are. Self-image. And sometimes it comes across as aggression or arrogance or something like that, or fear. But what it is, is they are not happy with who they are. And for people like that, Jesus says, the reason I've come is to work a change in you so that you can not only be at peace with God, but you can be at peace with who you are. And if you're at peace with God, and if you're at peace with who you are, then you're better able to be at peace with people around you. But if there's no peace within your heart, you're going to struggle to be at peace with anybody else. And so Jesus is coming out of Samaria there. And he spent some time there. Uh, spent a couple of days there. And the people welcomed him once they understood who he was. Very strong contrast. These Samaritans who were so hated 
and ostracized by the Jews. Yet when Jesus came, they understood who he was and they welcomed him. His own people rejected him. So, in chapter 4, starting with verse 46, coming out of Samaria now, so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And so he's telling us, the author of uh, John's gospel here is telling us, he's picking up this story from back here in chapter 2, isn't he? Because the last thing he said there at, at, at uh, the wedding in Cana is that this was his first sign that he did there at Cana in Galilee in verse 11. Now in chapter 4, verse 46, he's picking up the story. He came again. He's coming back to Canaan where he had made the water wine. At Capernaum, which is where his home was now, Jesus' home, that's a more or less about 18 miles away. So Capernaum's on the seashore, Sea of Galilee, but he's inland at Canaan, about more or less 18 miles away. At Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So the man in Capernaum hears that Jesus has come out of Samaria, out of Judea, through Samaria. He's now back in Canaan. And he travels the 18 or so miles to meet Jesus. He could have waited. Why didn't he wait? His son is sick and about to die. Can't wait. That's a desperate man. So he gets up, and he's a, a, one of the, the rulers of the synagogue. He gets up, and he travels the 18 miles. And he's asking Jesus to come down. So Jesus said to him, and he's speaking to our skeptical society and culture today, just like Mary did earlier. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's a challenge, isn't it? That's a challenge to us, isn't it? What's the criteria that you have for determining whether God is in your midst or not? Have a checklist? Well, if I pray right now, and in the next... 10 minutes or so, God answers my prayer, then it's a good service and God is here. Or if we're singing the songs, the worship team is leading us and the Spirit touches people and you feel good about yourself and, and you know, well, that's a good service because I felt good about myself. You know, so what's our list? What's our criteria? Jesus said, anytime two or more of you get together, I'm with you. It's not a question. I am with you. And then he tells us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so, well, uh, is God with us today or not? The Word of God, we do what He tells us. When we gather in His name, He promised, I'm with you. Whether you feel like it or not, whether you see anything or not, it doesn't make any difference. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of the Lord. The people in the wilderness died in the desert because of their unbelief. And there were signs 
and wonders. They were being fed every day with manna. Every day. For 40 years, the manna was there. Is God with us or not? When you're thirsty, God brings water out of a desert, out of hard rock. And the water flows. Not a trickle, but enough for all those people and all of their cattle that were traveling with them. I don't really know if God is really with me or not. And so they see these. They have a pillar of fire at night. They have a pillar of cloud at the daytime. Well, I wonder if God is leading me or guiding me today. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Uh, But unless your heart is drawn toward God, you're not going to believe it anyway. Because seeing is not believing, is it? These people who crucified Jesus, those men and women had been there. They saw the miracles that Jesus performed. They did not question those things. They saw those things and then they nailed him to the cross. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's not the signs and wonders. It's not the power that we're looking after. It's the relationship of knowing who he is and walking in his presence. So Jesus challenges this man. My son is at the point of death. Will you come down? It's going to take him a while to walk the 18 miles back. So the official, when Jesus tells him that, he says, Sir, come down before my child dies. I don't know about signs and wonders. I'm not asking you. I'm just asking you to come. Because this man believed that if Jesus came, his son would live. So, do you have to walk 18 miles with him before you believe that his son's going to be well? Do you have to see Jesus walk into the room and speak or lay his hand or however he wants to do it to see that take place? Do we have to see that happen? That's what Jesus is asking this man. And this man says, look, just come. And Jesus said to him, it's okay, go home, your son's going to be well. And he did not go. Unless you see signs and wonders. But this man, because he had a word from Christ, from Jesus, go, your son will live. The man, reading from John, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So the man looked at Jesus and he said, I've heard your word, that's enough. I'll be going home. And he got up and left. Walks 18 miles back. And as he's going, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Did you get that? His son was recovering. It wasn't an instantaneous healing. But he turned the corner and he's getting better. Sometimes Jesus touched people and it was instantaneous. But it wasn't every time because God is not going to fit in your box or my box or anybody else's box. He will do it his way, his time, because he is God and not us. And he is not a slave to your or my expectations. And he's not on our timetable. So he asked 
the man. The man asked the hour when he began to get better. And they said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And what's the result? And he himself believed and all his household. Word of God, it creates faith. The man takes that and he walks in obedience to God. And the result is, there's a healing of his son, but more than that, there's a transformation in the father, isn't there? He himself believed in his whole household. And John continues, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. He's linking these two events, the wedding at Cana and the healing of this man's son. John himself, the writer, is linking these two signs together, the location and the result. The issues are the same. Word from God creates faith within the heart. You believe it, you act on it, Transformation takes place. Water to wine, sinner to saint. What we are to what God has created us to be. And so here we are this morning. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And we hear the voice of Mary saying to us, do whatever he tells you. And when that happens, transformations take place. In the words of David, the psalmist this morning, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to you this morning that you're the faithful God, the God who loves us, and the God who sees us in our need and speaks the word that creates life out of nothing. The same God who created the universe. And by your word, we are transformed and we are healed and we are made whole in every area of our life. So Lord, we pray that your word would awaken that faith, create it within our hearts and draw us to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have communion every Sunday um, in our church. It's open communion. That means it's, everyone is welcome here. If you're a visitor, you're welcome to come. Um, but I want you all to help me a little bit this morning, okay? When I say home, what does that mean for you, home? What is home? What do you think? Where you live, your house. Your house. Okay, where you live. Anything else? Home. Resting place. Resting place. I'm going home. Where you feel comfortable. Where you're welcome. Where you can be yourself. We live um, in a society where they talk about homelessness. And I was uh, reading a book a couple weeks ago, and the author talked about people who are living their life with an inner homelessness. They don't feel comfortable. They don't feel welcome. They don't feel at rest. They don't feel welcome. That's where they live. I was talking to a man here in Uvalde uh, the other day, and he says, well, I've got my house here, 
but it's not a home. Uh, he said, I, I, I'm just here. And it's, it, I like the place I'm at. It's, you know, it's okay, but it's, it's not a home. So this inner homelessness. I was talking with my friend uh, Jake Lee up there in Uganda on the border of Sudan. And there's this huge stream, you don't hear about it much in the news, of refugees coming over from South Sudan because of the violence of the civil war there. And um, these are refugees. And he said as he's talking with his people, you can see it in their eyes, uh, the fear and the hopelessness. Because when they come, it's what they can carry. So you think about it. Go home today and look at your home and your house and everything. And if somebody came and says, you've got to leave in the next hour, and all that you can take with you is what you can carry on your back. You have to leave all your vehicles, all your transportation here. You're going to be walking on foot. It's just you and your family and whatever you all can carry. That's it. And if you don't, you will die. And you're hearing the gunshots and the artillery fire. That's going on every day. So these are refugees, homeless people. And there are people today in our country, in our neighborhood, in our community, who are spiritual refugees. They are running, and they don't know where they're going, and they don't know where they've been, but they are running. And they are not at peace, and they are not at home. And in the midst of that, uh, we hear Jesus saying, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can come home. You can be at peace. You can find your place of acceptance and belonging. And it begins at the foot of the cross. That's where it's at. At the foot of the cross. The God who created you is the God who died for you and the God who lives that you might be filled with his presence and hear his voice saying, I will give you a peace that the world cannot give and the world cannot take away and the world does not understand, but they recognize it when they see it. And that's what he invites us to. So um, one of the criticisms leveled against Jesus all throughout his ministry is, look at this guy. He's supposed to be a prophet or the man of God or whatever he is because they weren't accepting him as the Messiah then. This holy man. And what does he do? He eats with sinners, tax collectors, other people that are social outcasts. He eats with sinners. In the upper room, that's what he was doing. Those men in the upper room, they weren't holy men. And every one of them was going to deny him, betray him, or run away from him that very night. And every one of them were sitting there in his presence saying, I'll follow you even though I have to die for you. I'll face torture for you. <laughs> and Jesus looked at him, at them, and he said, Today, and it was late at night by that time, before sunup, you will all run away. And they said, Nah, I know better, don't we? We always know better than God. I know better. 
I'll never, never, even though I have to lay down my life. Everybody else can run away. I never will. Oh, man. Crucifixion. Death. Today. Now. I'm out of here. <laughs> These are the ones that Jesus invites to this table. That includes us. Jesus eats with sinners and publicans, tax collectors, people like that. Thank God. Thank God for his mercy and his grace that reaches down to people like us. And he invites us to come. So, we're going to ask, uh, this is possible, because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, that very night in the upper room, Jesus took bread. This was after the supper, after the Passover meal. He's adding to it now. He picks up the bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat. This is my body. It's broken for you. After supper, he took the cup. And again, after he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, Take, drink, each one of you. This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which was shed for you and for many. It's for the forgiveness of sins. It's the bread of the presence. It's the cup of forgiveness and salvation. And he invites us to come and participate. So that's the invitation that Christ gives as a church. We also add our invitation. Uh, you're welcome here at this table. Uh, at the same time, we want you to feel at home and comfortable. So if you're not comfortable coming up here, then you don't have to come. Uh, but you are welcome. We just want you to know. So if those who are serving communion will please come forward.